Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they brought upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, your word that does not change, your word that stands through to time, your word that is reliable. Father, cause our hearts to hear, prick our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today. Work by the power of your Holy Spirit during our time now in your word, Lord, for your name. Amen. Please be seated. So our passage today deals um, with really two things. You see this turn as Luke is recording his history. He uses these summary statements that we see like in verse 7 that almost turning the page in the course of the history. And so we have this story of what's going on in the church and there's some conflict that we're going to look at. And then we have the beginning of the story of Stephen. And as I was thinking of the theme as we're trying to get the big picture as we move, move through each chapter of Acts, and I was thinking of the theme, uh, you see it there in the sermon title, Through Love Serve One Another, that we'd be a people of service. And as I look around the church, that's one of the things that really strikes me about Christ the King, for which I'm, I'm really thankful for. And I almost made the mistake of mentioning very specific things, and then I realized when you do that and you... Uh, celebrate what people are doing and the ways in which they're serving. Inevitably, you leave people out, so I decided not to do that. Uh, But I'm grateful for the the ways that most of you are serving and are engaged, many of which people never know and see. And I think that that is something that is not only uh, something that we thank God for. It gives his name great praise, but it's also an encouragement when people do see and do notice. But it's something that we all benefit from because we come in and Lights are on, and the air's cool, and the seats are comfortable, and the floor's been cleaned, and you know there's all these behind-the-scenes things that happen. 
And today we're going to get a little bit behind the scene view of the church, the early church here in this chapter in Acts. So in verse 1, where we begin, we see the church continuing to grow. It says the disciples were increasing in number. And growth is something typically that we think is good. We celebrate growth when we look back to the early church. Church is growing. This is a good thing. We think in our own church as we grow, this is a, a positive thing. But with, with growth comes change. With growth comes growing pains, right? We talk about this. And growing pains are painful. Uh, what is a change for you to the positive may be a change for someone else to the negative. And so uh, it reminded me of words that my dad often spoke to me, and I don't think they're original to him. I just remember he said it the most. Uh, change is loss, and loss is grief. And when you think about that, any change you know, is inevitably some sense of loss for someone, uh, and loss is grief. And so when changes happen, people can kind of get their feathers ruffled a little bit. And it happens more and more in the church as it grows. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. With this growth comes some conflict. And the conflict is initiated by these Hellenist Jews. Now remember, both parties here are Jews. But they are Jews who have come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. This is difficult maybe to to get an image of because today we see Judaism and Christianity as very distinct uh, religions. But at this time, uh, there wasn't really a separation yet. Uh, Believers were still going to the synagogue. Now, they wouldn't have gone to the temple. They saw the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. They would have gone to the temple, but they wouldn't have gone to sacrifice there, rather. They would have gone to the synagogues, and we see the apostles doing this. But in terms of how people viewed themselves, their identity, they, didn't, they, they weren't calling themselves yet Christians. This would come later. It would initially be a derogatory term that then believers would bring upon themselves. So both in this group are Jews, but you've got two distinct groups, the Hellenists and then the Hebrew Jews. And notice that it's one group against the other. Now, there's, there is an issue that's happening But it's from that issue that comes the complaint. And we see in verse 1 that complaint is aimed at the people, really, not the issue. And isn't that typically what we do? When something's not right, we kind of side with like-minded people, and then we call those people the problem. You you can see this happening. You can understand how it happens. This is sort of how our hearts are, are wired, our fallen hearts. But, of course, there was an issue, and it had to do with the daily distribution Uh, as Luke calls it in verse 1. We don't know specifically if this was just food or money or both, but he doesn't give us the logistical information. But it was a work of mercy. And this was something that was a part of Judaism. Uh, We see it's close to the heart of God. We can't go through the Old Testament and not see that God has a heart for those in need. Their widows were being neglected, the text tells us. The the Hellenist uh, widows specifically. When we look in the Old Testament, we see, and we saw this even this morning, that the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, which is a biblical word for a refugee, have always been close to the heart of God. And because of this, God has always given his people instructions for how to meet the needs of these people. In Deuteronomy 14.29, the words, uh, and the Levite, uh, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are with you in your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So God not only instructs them to care for those in need, but he promises a blessing when they do. 
And likewise, when they didn't do this, God pronounced judgment. We see this, again, multiple times in Scripture. Uh, We see the judgment multiple times in the prophets. Ezekiel is just one example, Ezekiel 22. He writes, Behold, the princes of Israel and you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. So you sense that God only has a heart for it. He is deeply offended when his people neglect those who are in need. So the work of mercy has always been close to God's heart, and it will always be a mark of God's people, or should always be a mark of God's people. Works of mercy become an incredible testimony to an unbelieving world. And we see this again and again. You've probably seen this just in your life in, in a local context, but we see this in history as well. One thing that you may not know, John Calvin, who somebody that we talk a lot about, you know, we read his things and we talk about Calvinism, um, but he also uh, left a, a pretty significant mark in history in the realm of mercy. Uh, Derek Thomas notes that in Geneva, he reformed diaconal ministries, emphasizing the need for the church rather than the state to care for the poor. Under his direction, Geneva built hospitals, built schools, and took in over 50,000 refugees. In fact, to this day, 16th century Geneva stands as one of the greatest community development projects in all of history. So it, it, it leaves a mark even in history. And of course, on the other side, it also uh, we can see in history how uh, in communist Russia they responded to the works of the church, works of mercy. Uh, the Kremlin outlawed charitable or cultural activities in churches because, as one Kremlin spokesman said, the state cannot tolerate any challenge to its claim on the heartstrings of the Russian people. So our mercy, our acts of mercy, our hearts for mercy, when we're, they're broken over the needs of others and when we respond with works of mercy become a testimony that's something that the church should be marked by. The church is not to be marked only by the message of the gospel, but by the deeds of the gospel. And we see this in a passage like Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 describes the fruit of the gospel, that we would love justice, that we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's the kind of people that we are to be. So as we think about gospel deeds and we look back at the the issues that are going on here in this, about money, about food, no, it's really about injustice. The widows were being neglected. They should have been cared for and something wasn't right. Now, Hellenists were those Jews who were from the diaspora. These were Jews who had been dispersed Uh, from Israel, and they may have been born or were raised in uh, Greek, uh, predominantly Greek culture. So this could have been in Europe or Asia. They spoke Greek. They thought in a Western way where uh, Hebraic Jews, the Hebraic widows, would have thought more in an Eastern way. They would have spoken Aramaic. So there was this language distinction. There was a sense of uh, a little bit of, even, even though they were both Jews, there was a sense of ethnic distinction because they were from different regions. And we know how these things happen among people. In other words, the Hellenist Jews were the minority group. And even though Luke doesn't mention, I think it's safe to say, and many scholars point this out, that they would have been ostracized in, other, in, 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 in ways. They would have been looked down upon. They weren't quite as good of Jews as the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And again, we understand this because we see 
if, if we're honest, not only do other people do this, but we ourselves are tempted to do this when we're in the group with power, when we're in the group in the majority, and all you have to do is go out to a playground to see this happen, right? Just how our hearts are bent. It can be carried on, and we've seen this happen again in history to create atrocities. Um, we have these as a part of our own country's history, and we have these as part of history around the world. It's something that's not unique to one culture or to one language group. It happens everywhere because the problem is ultimately sin. And so we see this beginning to creep up. And the apostles are going to deal with it quickly, swiftly, and wisely in how they respond. So the Hellenists is the minority group. They felt the pain of being neglected in the daily distribution the Hebrew speakers were the ones who uh, weren't inclined, I guess, to get out of line or to let them in line or whatever the specific problems were. The specifics obviously aren't important. They're not told to us. Um, but the conflict erupts, and it's a us-against-them mentality. So the apostles begin to call. It says all the disciples together. Now, we're not sure exactly what this means because, again, estimates are that believers in Jerusalem could be between fifteen and 20,000 at this point. So I don't think it was every believer in Jerusalem, but there was some sense of leadership, some sense of organization, leaders who were called together. It was all hands on deck moment. And they said, the apostles to these disciples, they said it wouldn't be pleasing to God for us to stop or to quit the ministry of the preaching of the word and prayer to serve tables. That's the way the language implies is that it said it wouldn't be right, but it's really it wouldn't be pleasing to God. We're tempted when we read this to look at this as if there's some sense of superiority in the preaching of the word and prayer, as if there is a hierarchy in this in terms of the, the, the sacredness of the roles. But we know from Scripture that there is no secular, sacred divide. Whatever it is that God has called you to, that is a sacred calling. That is to what, what you are to do with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength to his glory. And, but what the disciples are, are signifying is there is an importance on their role that the whole church suffers if they don't give themselves to the preaching of the word and to prayer. It's all about calling and roles, and the apostles were called to this very specific role. He mentions the ministry of the word twice in verse 2 and verse 4. He mentions prayer in verse 4. And, and what he's saying is that there's many things that need to be done. And there's nothing wrong with us doing these things. But if they distract from what we're primarily supposed to do, it is not what God has called us to do. It's also important to understand that the way this reads in the English is waiting tables or waiting on tables. Uh, and we think immediately of the food service industry, that this is what the, the apostles and disciples were talking about. But this, it was much more than that. It was the entire operation. It was uh, management. It could have easily been. It's the same term that was used for the, the money exchangers at the tables in the temple. So it was dealing with food. It was dealing with money. It was dealing with logistics. It was the entire administration of the process. Again, the numbers are significant here, and we don't know the exact numbers, but it would have taken quite an operation. And so with such an operation, the apostles point out we need people who are wise, we need people who are mature. Financial management requires trust, people management requires compassion, there's a pastoral skill that's necessary in dealing with people to treat them with dignity when we help them, 
that, that's, that's, that's something that we should be doing. There's logistical management that requires organization and leading people and resolving conflicts and so forth. So don't be tempted to look down on these seven who are set aside as if their task is, is inferior. And don't also be tempted to look at any role as if it's something of prestige in the church. The Lord has warnings about looking to roles and offices and titles. We don't need those to serve. In fact, I would argue that those who are qualified to serve in an office are already doing that before they ever get to the office. We don't need the position, the title, or the role to do these things. We remember the words of Jesus, so the last will be first and the first will be last, this idea. Or when he said in Luke, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So the mark of a biblical leader is that of a servant. Now there's also the emphasis on the preaching of the word and prayer, and I want to just point this out again. Elders, including pastors, can often be tempted to get distracted by menial uh, tasks, uh, things that need to be done uh, that are necessary and so forth, uh, but not necessarily what they need to be doing. And again, that may come across as some kind of, uh, uh, I use the word menial, that's probably not the best word to, to, to use, but the idea that there's some kind of superiority in that, it's not. It's that we need people who are going to set aside time in the Word and in prayer for us as a church, as a congregation. So right now in the life of Christ the King, that's, that's me and it's, it's the, the ruling elders here who are doing that. And that's something that is deeply encouraging to me that we have elders who are not only freeing me up to spend the time studying, but also when we come together, our times and meetings are not marked first and foremost by business, but by prayer. I, I want you to know that. I want you to know that when we gather together to meet, this, is deep, this was already in place. This is not something that I put in place. This is, this is your, what your elders do. They spend a considerable amount of time in prayer for you. This is important. And this is what needs to be set aside for those in that role. We don't need to neglect neglect these means of grace. So coming back to the situation in Acts, the solution then is to pick these seven men who are going to take on the role of caring for the widows and and handle those needs. And notice there are three qualifications in verse 3. They have a good reputation. In other words, they're known as honest, uh, for one thing. They're full of the Spirit, and they're wise. Now, these aren't specifically deacons. The term's not used there in the, in, the, in the office role. It's used in a verb form. But these are the forerunners of what this office would eventually become as the church grows into this. Um, but note that these men did not just serve in diaconal ways. Stephen, we see in verse 8, was doing great signs and wonders. He was preaching. Philip, we will learn later, is an evangelist and a preacher. In other words, all of us have times in our lives where we, we have called and we've been given certain roles, but it doesn't mean that's all we do, as if we have to say, well, I don't do that because this is my role. That's not in my job description. I don't share my faith because I'm not an evangelist. You know, I don't pick up a broom when there's crumbs on the floor because I'm not in that role. No, there are times where we all see a need and we meet a need, or we see an opportunity to share our faith and we do that. And so these men had diverse skills. Uh, We're all to be people of mercy. We're all to share our faith. We're all to give to the needs of others. 
But these seven men in particular are going to take over the role of caring for the widows and solve this problem. It's also interesting that all seven men have Hellenist names. Now, we don't know for sure because it was common for, for even Jews, uh, Hebraic-speaking Jews or Aramaic, they would have spoken Aramaic in their everyday language, but they would have known Hebrew, of course, uh, that they would have had a Greek name. So we don't, we're not positive that these are all Greek, but at least some of them are. We do know two of them for sure, and maybe all seven were. So you even see some wisdom in how the apostles solved the problem, that the problem was the neglect on the Hellenist side, and they, they moved Hellenist leaders in to be a part of the solution. And then we see this turn in the text where the word of God increases, verse 7. And this is a section break for Luke as he recounts the history um, we've seen some of these already. The summaries help us to see what has happened and what is moving forward. But this is a significant turn because we're turning now into the life of Stephen. And Stephen plays a very important role in the, uh, in the early church. It says, and this, I, I did find this interesting here, it's not saying the church continues to grow, but the word of God continues to increase. That's how it's worded here. And the verb here is passive. And the idea is that the word of God is increasing or growing. It's this agricultural image that God is actually doing the work. God is giving the increase. And, of course, that makes me think of 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where Paul says, I planted, Apollo water, uh, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's what Luke is describing here, something very similar with this agricultural um, language. And he uses the same word that he uses in his own gospel where he talks about the parable of the sower. And some seed fell on the good soil and yielded a hundredfold. So that's the image that, that Luke is telling us here as the church grows. And then the last part of that sentence, even the priests were coming to faith. How remarkable. Here are those that had opposed God, uh, or opposed Jesus, opposed gospel, in, in, in thinking that they were on God's side, that these were the ones who had, had given the greatest opposition to the gospel, and now great numbers of the priests are coming to faith. And obviously this is a work of God, but think of their perspective. I mean, these are the ones who had a front row seat at the temple. They had seen the sacrificial work. And it was as if now for them, with this front row seat, everything was clicking. This is the Lamb of, the God, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that everything in the temple, all of our daily tasks, all of the work that we've been doing, this is who's been pointing to all along. He's come. He's here. It's the Messiah. And many of the priests responded in obedient faith. That's what the text says. And then we move into the story of Stephen. And we're only going to get, this is basically like an introductory sentence uh, into the story. The bulk of it is in next week, uh, in next week's chapter. If you noticed, you know, you've been faithful when we stand to read God's word. And some of the chapters in Acts have been really long. Today's was comparably really short. Well, next week's is really, really long. (laughs) So I'm not sure if we're going to be able to actually get through it all or if we need to get through it all. I'm actually may for the first time break up the chapter. But this is the introductory sentence, and we're going to leave it with this today as we look at Stephen, um, who is a significant person. Now, Luke introduces several key people in the book of Acts. We've already met Barnabas. We're going to see him again. Uh, We're going to see a guy named Saul. You may have Remember him as Paul. Uh, We're going to see Cornelius, but today we see Stephen. And Stephen is described in some incredible language here. Look in verse 5. He's full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, full of grace and power. 
Verse 8 again, doing great wonders and signs. Verse 10, speaking with wisdom in the Spirit. His face, verse 15, was like that of an angel. And we're going to see more about Stephen as we go through the story. You, Luke uses these words, it's almost just too much. It's almost over the top. You almost wonder, is this hyperbole uh, in terms of how he is describing Stephen? But it's not. I don't, I don't think it is. Because Stephen was a... a, a he was special. I, I, for lack of a better word, Stephen was special. He was set apart by God for a very unique task because he would be the first martyr of the church. His blood would become the seed of the church. And so God set him aside, marked him, and he equipped him for this task. And we see this in how Luke describes him. Full of faith, the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power, and on and on. And then Luke describes the opposition. And and as we read through it, um, let me just highlight again, because this sounds faintly familiar to another story, another persecution that we've seen. Verse 9, leaders in the church rose up and disputed him. Verse 11, they secretly instigated men who falsely accused him. Verse 12, they even stirred up the elders and the scribes. Verse 12, they seized him and brought him before the council. Verse 13, they set up false witnesses. What does this sound like? Well, it sounds a little bit like Peter when he was brought up, but it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? The similarities are striking. And of course, we know that as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Stephen likewise prayed for forgiveness of those who were about to kill him with stones. Now, these people who who would pick up the stones, and I hope I'm not ruining the end of the story for anyone who's not familiar with the story of Stephen, but that is where it's going. These were devout Jews who were very committed to their faith, who thought they were fighting a good fight, We don't know the intentions of their heart, but they were trying to protect their theology. And it's interesting that Luke describes where they're from as if, you know, what's the significance? He he says some are from North Africa, uh, some are from Asia, some are probably from Europe. In other words, these weren't just local Hebrew-speaking Jews. These were Jews from all over, really, the, 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 the world at that point. And as a part of this, and this is where I think it gets interesting, Cilicia, which is part of Asia, which includes a city named Tarsus. And we're soon going to see, at the end of the next chapter, a man from Tarsus emerge. In other words, Saul was here. And of course, we know he's here because it's at his feet that they throw, the ones who throw the stones, that they laid their garments So here, one of the leading persecutors against Stephen is this man named Saul who would come become the Apostle Paul. And I think this is what Luke wants us to see. Yet even in the face of this incredible opposition and injustice, we see Stephen stand as an example with grace, with faith, with wisdom, with a face of an angel. What does that mean? Well, I don't know exactly. Uh, it, it is kind of unique. It is unique. It's one of the reasons why I think we can say Stephen is unique. Because the only other times we see this type of description used in Scripture, uh, two that, that come to mind. One is Moses. When he went up to the mountain, he came down. He had seen the back of God. It's the glimpse of the glory of God. And what did he have to do? He had to put a veil on his face because his face was shining. And Jesus, after the transfiguration 
shown. In other words, it's as if the veil between heaven and earth is becoming very thin at these moments in history. And we know this as we know the story, as we'll see next week or in the coming weeks, that this indeed is what's happening with Stephen, this thinning of the veil as he prepares to move from this world to the next. This is the reflection that we see in his face. Yet even with such a supernatural event, something unnatural, something not normal, this is not what these leaders would have normally seen, is a man responding with grace and wisdom and faith, but also with the face of an angel. Yet even in all of that, their hearts remained hardened. They couldn't see. They saw his face. It should have been a miracle that made them go, oh, okay, this is it. He's speaking truth, but they didn't. They closed their eyes and they closed their ears. So, why was the word of God increasing? Why was uh, the number of disciples greatly multiplying? Why were many of the priests becoming obedient to faith? And even more, why was Stephen willing and able to stand in the midst of such opposition? And the answer is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why this happened. I mean, this operation... (laughs) This, this you know, thing in history, this birth of Christianity should have been shut down a long time ago. And this is another episode where it should have, from a human perspective, been shut down. But it wasn't. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is because Jesus has come to right all wrongs, to fill all voids, to heal all wounds. In one sentence, Jesus has come to save sinners. This is why this was happening. The growth of the church, the people of God, was not coming from the strategies of men or the diligence or the hard work of people from believing in themselves or having enough faith in faith. The growth of the church was happening in an upside-down, seemingly foolish, confusing manner that no person could take credit for. And the kingdom of God is continuing today, in power, by the sovereign hand of our God. You see, it's not Stephen who I want to, for you to remember, <laughs> for you to look to as you leave today. I want you to look to the one that Stephen was looking to that caused his face to shine like that of an angel. I want you to see Jesus. He was looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith. He was looking to Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected who became the cornerstone. He was looking to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was looking to Jesus, the promised Messiah and Savior who came and fulfilled the law and saved us from our sins, both things which we could not do for ourselves. He was looking to Jesus who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so with Stephen, let's look at the beauty and majesty of Jesus today as we go so that we can, through love, serve others. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Even as we look at Stephen, we realize it's not Stephen that we need to be, look, to be looking at, but it's you. You are the one who is majestic and beautiful. You are the one who came to make all things new. You are the one who has saved us from our sins and made us your own, Lord. Cause us to see Jesus high and lifted up today and then move in our hearts, Lord, that that gospel truth, that gospel message that has brought us from darkness into light would transform our lives to be people of mercy, people of compassion, gospel people as we go out and live, that you would then use our good works for others to see to then in turn glorify you in heaven. Lord, give us hearts of compassion. 
Cause us to see, not only see your heart, but to have your heart for the widow, for the orphan, for the refugee, for the down and out, for the downtrodden. Lord, cause us to have your heart. And let it not be motivated by our own efforts as if we're earning something in your sight, Lord, but may it be motivated and rooted in solely the good work that's been done for us on behalf of, or on on our part by Jesus, Lord. Motivate us by the great gospel truth. Give us that great love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.